I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, very excited to have uh, a very special guest on today. We have uh, a fellow by the name of Perry Delise. Uh, Perry is founder, managing partner of Wildeboard Delise, which is one of Canada's leading corporate finance and transactional law firms. Perry practices in the areas of securities, corporate finance, and mergers and acquisitions. And uh, us at Firepower have a lot of personal experience with, with Wildeboard Delise and uh, They've been a, a great service provider for us, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Perry, I know that you're also a part of numerous boards, uh, charitable boards and others, so we can get uh, some background on that. But uh, thank you very much for joining me, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a privilege and honor to be asked, and uh, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm happy to be here, and hopefully uh, uh, our viewers will find it interesting and and uh, worthy of some good advice. Absolutely. So, so Perry, would love to start at the beginning. I mean, you have such an eclectic story that I've heard in passing from others. This will be the first time that I that I delve a little deeper into that story. But give us a sense of what the start looked like. Like, what? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What were the roots of what became Perry Delise? Okay. Well, thank you. That's. Uh, I've been asked many times about the start of our firm, but not from uh, my very beginning. So. I, I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario. I'm sorry um, to hear that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. Every time I public speak, I, I let people know, and I wear that on my chest a bit. But uh, the background there is very simply, it was a, it's a mining town, now city. Um, it is really a, an entrepreneurial-based town in the sense of any small town that grows up uh, with an industry, as it did with uh, mining and nickel and copper in particular. Uh, my father's family immigrated from Italy, started in Sudbury because that's where the jobs were, started in the mines. Were there a lot of Italians that, that landed up in Sudbury? Yeah, yeah, a lot of Western Europeans. So uh, certainly a group of Italians went to Northern Ontario. Uh, in the Sioux has, Sioux St. Marie has many as well as uh, Sudbury. And really, because there were jobs, there's jobs in the mines. And uh, my family started working in the mines and then built a small business. It became a trucking business. And like every Italian uh, family, took their profits and invested in real estate. And unfortunately, it was in Sudbury, not Toronto, but uh, it's the history of our family. And uh, as I grew up, uh, my mother always asked, not asked, demanded that I did not work in the family business. Uh, for those of uh, any of our viewers that know family businesses, you would understand why it can be challenging. And uh, all the benefits of family can go out the window when you're talking about business. So um, she uh, encouraged me to get an education. And I always, for some reason, wanted to be a lawyer. And so when I went to university, and as I went through the different uh, universities, I did my undergrad at Western. I did a master's of business at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And then I went to law school at the University of Ottawa and became a lawyer in Toronto. So what I think people will find, that's a pretty typical upbringing, I think. I mean, you know, you start with a an immigrant family and you work through, you get an education and you become a professional. I think what your viewers and our viewers will find interesting is more the story of the law firm. You talk about a typical upbringing. I guess you're correct in the Canadian landscape, you know, being an immigrant and 
going from there is a very traditionally Canadian upbringing. But how much do you believe that the immigrant side of it played into, you know, your kind of work ethic? You know, I'm always fascinated by what makes someone someone. And you spoke about your mother demanding that you don't go into the into into the family business. You know, was did you grow up in a very matriarchal culture? Just would love to delve a little deeper into like what led you because I, I know you as a fairly big personality. Where did that come from? <laughs> uh, well, for first of all, my 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 mother, they were my mother's side of the family were also an Italian family business in Sudbury. And uh, at grade 12, her father, my mother's father, my grandfather said, you're done school and you have to work in the family business. She became a bookkeeper for the family business. So I think more out of just that being deprived of an education, she insisted that her children did get an education. And so that drove her to make that advice. Of the 13 grandchildren in our family, I'm the only one that went out and got a post-secondary university education. Actually, that's not true. One of my cousins, one of my cousins did as well, and one other cousin. But it was wasn't that like many time many kids at that age at that that era stayed in Sudbury, went to Laurentian University, which is a fine university. Not many left town. It was just the way it was. I think it was just my mother always wanting me to become a lawyer, and knowing that there was not going to be anytime soon, and there certainly still isn't a law school in Sudbury that drove me to leave town and and to do that. I don't know if it's really the immigration side of it. You're absolutely right in that, you know, that stereotype is very true. Immigrations get to a new country, find a new opportunity, a new world, and they seem to work harder. But I mean, I know lots of non-immigrants that work very hard as well. I think I'd credit more the hard work ethic and the entrepreneurialism, more I'd credit that more to growing up in a small business family. I think that that's what both sides of our family, my both sets of grandparents, started businesses in Canada. I grew up with everybody working every day, everybody pitching in in whatever way they could, from aunts, uncles, in-laws, cousins, brothers, sisters. We all worked in the family business, and it really was an all-for-one, one-for-all attitude. So when you see that, it sparks in you that desire to work and build something. And I don't, I, I mean, it's prevalent with immigration, immigrant families, but it's not only immigrant families that have that. But I mean, it sounds like you had DNA of entrepreneurs in your family. So yeah, probably the, exactly. Like, I mean, that, that's, that's more of the story. Yeah. So, so, but so now like, you know, what, what typically happens even with entrepreneurs that I find, you know, because clearly you're an entrepreneur, but you go to enough schooling, you know, you go to Notre Dame then you go to do law school and eventually it breaks you and you become a common man, but why did you not go into the typical journey of a typical lawyer? And what you know, what what kind of led you down the path and the the audacious path of starting your own? You know, so so let's let's start on that story. That I think is assuming uh, our audience is generally uh, professionals and and uh, you know capital markets, Bay Street type type folks and entrepreneurs. I think that's the interesting part of my story because I was going down the very traditional path of a Bay Street lawyer. I uh, went through the, the student process that's man- managed and governed by the Law Society of Ontario. I uh, applied to all the major firms and was given a job, a summer job, and an articling job at Steichman Elliott. There was 18 of us. I tell this story long ago. I wasn't too excited about it, but now I tell it with pride. There was 18 students. 17 got hired back. The whole goal in articling is you work really, really hard for summer and articling. 
And then if you're really good, you get hired back as an associate. So there's 18 students and that year, 17 got hired back. And uh, guess who didn't? Yours truly. And I say this with the utmost respect for Steichman Elliott, the people that I work with, my mentor, the people that told me I wasn't going to be hired back. I always tell him that you fired me. And he said, no, we didn't fire you. We just didn't hire you back. We have an awesome relationship. We're great friends. And I just didn't fit the mold. And uh, call it, you know, my, my background, call it my family roots, call it my entrepreneurism, call it my naivety, uh, even. It just didn't work out. And so, you know, on Bay Street, word travels quick. And if you're, let's say, a, a cohort is 20 lawyers uh, or students, and they're going to hire 15 back, the other five are okay. If there's 12 and they hire eight, the other four are okay. But when you have 18 and only one isn't hired back, you know, it like doesn't matter what type of person you are. There's this stigma that, boy, this guy, uh, there must be something wrong that we can't identify in an interview. So I couldn't get a single interview. Sorry, Perry, I want to stop you there for one second. You, you say you didn't you didn't fit the mold. Can you give me a little bit more detail? What, what does that mean? You didn't fit the mold. I, well, I think that in those days, I think now it, the way we run our man, our law firm and the way the other law firms run themselves, there was there's now more emphasis on creativity, innovation, client development, business development, a little bit outside of the box thinking. You're seeing that day in and day out, not just in the legal industry, in every industry. In those days, it was very much a suit and tie, day to day, show up at eight, work through the night, be FaceTime, you know, do as you're told, don't do what you think. Client development is taken care of by senior people. You will be given work to do and do it well and make sure you don't make any mistakes. There's some very good models out there in those days, but I wasn't that typical student. I, I couldn't be. I just I, and, and to be honest, I, I, I don't think this is a secret. I'm not exactly the best technical lawyer out there. Uh, I don't pretend to be and never have been. I think I could have been, but that wasn't my interest. Yet I wanted to be a lawyer. So I grew up always interested in the stock market, whatever that means. And so even when I explain what I do to people that aren't familiar with capital markets generally, and as you know, it certainly exceeds just what the stock market is. I kind of tell people I do stock market law. It means like public companies, private companies, companies that want to get stock market, be public. I mean, that's an easy way to explain it to someone that isn't familiar with this industry. Capital markets is private and public, stock markets, no stock markets, you know all that. Uh, we all know that, but that was always my interest. And so from my perspective, there was no choice but to stay on Bay Street if I wanted to stay in Canada. So I had to do that and I had to figure out a way to do it. And again, I think that that was true of every law firm and probably investment bank and venture capitalists and private equity firms uh, that were just in those days were just getting going was it was very much a suit and tie environment, very, very, very traditional environment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, I give you one. Ex I give you lots of examples, but I used to drive in from Mississauga in those days, and I would park on the Esplanade and walk up to Commerce Court. And in the summer, it was very hot, so I would drive in shorts and carry my suit and change into a suit in my office. Office, and they'd see me walk into reception and through reception in shorts and a t-shirt, and that didn't sit well with some people. Perry, you're talking to a guy who also started a business in a very traditional industry. People don't believe me, but this is actually true. I don't know how to tie a tie. And I'm very proud of that. <laughs> the yeah. last, time, last time I had someone, I, my, my father tied my tie last time, which was my brother's wedding, probably six years ago. And that was the last time I wore a tie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And clearly the world's changed. And 
And I, you know, like maybe as a young man at 28, 27 years old, I should have been more respectful. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I didn't want to be sweating in a suit all day. I put my suit on when it was a little bit more cooler. And, and there was a few things like that, 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 that happened over the course of 18 months. But not only that, like, it was like, there was never a disrespect. It was just an attitude that I don't think fit the mold. And that, but then you land up being the one not hired and now you're the black swan and can't get an interview. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly, that's what happened. And again, uh, you know, like it was with all due respect to that law firm. And, and frankly, like, I'm not going to pretend I was the best technical student at that time. I just wasn't. And there's no, there's no two ways about it. But, um, you know, that combined with a bit of a different attitude, it just didn't work out. And so, you know, when that happened, I had to think and think differently because I wanted to stay on Bay Street. I obviously applied to all the other law firms. I didn't get any interviews, yet I wanted to stay on Bay Street. I did have some opportunities with investment banks, but I I knew that I would kind of be going into the sort of same mold and same challenges. And so a few other uh, individuals, in particular, Rob Wildeboer, whose name is still on our in our letterhead, was um, of same mind uh, as me, but a great technical lawyer, and was disappointed that I didn't get hired back, disappointed that a couple of his friends were passed over as partners. And so we got talking and we decided to build a law firm together. And we reached out to four or five others uh, at Steichman Elliott, and they agreed. And so we started this group and we started talking in September of 1992. And we opened our doors on February 1st of 1993. And our founding principles, as I call them now, we didn't really articulate them that way at the beginning, were three things. Is number one is we were going to do business law. Now, you've started your own business and you can state whatever you want to state as your business objectives. The real objective is, is to keep the doors open and the phones ringing. And we would have done just about anything that came in the door. But what we wanted to focus on was business law. And we weren't sure what that was, but we knew that it wasn't going to be anything consumer-based or anything that involved going to court, which was very different because most law firms do everything or try to do everything. And so it led to a business law focus and no litigation. I'll get back to that in a minute. The second thing we said, we're going to be less bureaucratic and more flexible than all of the large law firms that you know. So what does that mean? We were casual in 1993 long before the Gap made Casual Fridays a, a reality. We always had a suit behind our door, but we all came into work casually. Harry, I got introduced to your firm in 2006 at a rooftop patio, a party that you guys used to host. So uh, I know all about the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that was a fun one. That was our 15th anniversary. And that goes to our third principle, that we were just going to have more fun in whatever way we did it. And so, you know, we were doing equity for fees, what we call alternative fee arrangements, long before Silicon Valley made it popular in the tech boom. So, you know, it was always going to be different, but focused on business law. And so those are our three founding principles. There are six of us. And um, you may or may not recall or know this, but in that day and age, the uh, real estate market was terrible in Toronto. So we were able to get half a floor on the eighth floor at First Canadian Place for just common area maintenance. So our rent was next to nothing. And uh, we started up and uh, we went 11 months without taking a paycheck. Each of us put in $75,000. I only had 70, so uh, they lent me five. 
And um, we didn't take a check until November or December of that 1993. And in our first year, we all made what we would have made, if not for me as a first year lawyer, I made more than I would have. And everyone else made as much or more than they would have at Steichman Elliott as senior associates. Did you understand how big of a risk you were taking or were you just young enough and naive enough that you didn't really get it? I didn't. I had no idea, really. I mean, I was just me and like I was 29. I was like, whatever, like what could happen? I mean, the reason I asked that is because I started my company at 26 and people say like, you know, what were you thinking? I'm like, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. It was 2009 after the 2008 you know, kind of crash. I didn't even realize that we were in a bad market. Like, never mind to start a new business. So naivety is a hell of a thing. Exactly. Like, how, how much worse could it be? You work somewhere for two years and you're one of 18 that, that gets canned. Yeah, well, it's only upside from there. <laughs> so, so the, the space, you know, you, you've talked about that, that one of 18 a few times. And how much of the chip of, on the shoulder like, did you have, and do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? The reason I ask is because people talk about this chip as a negative thing. And I've always, I've always been very, very open and honest about me having a chip on my shoulder. And I use it as an incredible motivation for me to outperform and to win. Well, chip on your shoulder is, that does have negative connotations. And so I wouldn't call it that. What I will say is that to this day, I stand up and pay a little bit more attention when one of the seven sister law firms are on the other side. It's a regular occurrence now, I'm happy to say. I mean, we're, we're in that world uh, on a regular basis. And when we do a, a beauty contest or we compete against them and we, we need to, you know, it's us selling against them on certain files. And frankly, some things we, just because of sheer size, we can't compete and we, we don't compete on some things. But when we do compete and we win against the big firms, I'm excited still to this day because uh, it was a club I couldn't get into. It's not negative. I go out of my way to try and befriend all of the managing partners of the major firms. Sadly, most of them are younger than me now, but uh, it's a very positive relationship. But it's competitive. Of course it is. And you want to be competitive. And frankly, when I know one of the great national law firms are on the other side of a transaction with us, it's a good thing. And it affects the fees. It affects the outcome. It affects everything in a positive way for the client. And I say it affects the fees. The fees will be significantly less than if you have one bad law firm and one good law firm. It's just reality. So it's a very, very positive reaction to what was a very, (laughs) you know, it was a long time ago. I don't dwell on it anymore. But yes, I, I do. I mean, I, I do compete a little harder when, or I'm a little bit more attentive when that has the opportunity. We're lucky enough now we get enough people going around that I don't have to pay attention to everything like I used to or every file. It didn't be impossible, as with the case with most organizations after this amount of time. But I, you know, I am proud to say that there's nobody that's done it in my career that started a law firm on Bay Street and competes at our level, you know, after 27 years. Most of the firms have either merged or you know, the founders have moved on and they've done something else. So we must be doing something right. And have you ever been tempted to merge with a larger competitor? Yeah, the calls the calls come frequently. I never say no because you learn something from those conversations. I, uh, um, and I'm, I'm fair to my partners. I think that there may be a group that may want to, so I have full transparency with them in the event that someone wants that. But if people join this firm, they, they that's not what they want. They want to be innovative, be individuals, be able to work in a, in a more 
user-friendly and fun environment and culture. The calls call come less now that uh, we put our name on a building and we own a piece of it. Like it's kind of hard to disengage from that. So people will kind of know that we're set in our ways, but you know, people come calling often for sure. So you've mentioned the word fun a couple of times, one in the context of, you know, your, your three principles. Let me ask you a question. Why is having fun important? Well, you know, fun can be de- can defined in many different ways. I think that in our industry and yours, and frankly, any industry where you want to be hugely successful, if you define success by making money, making more than, uh, you know, just an average sum of money and competing with the best in the world, which I think Canadian law firms are, then it's a difficult, difficult career. It's long hours. It's lots of sacrifices. You don't get what this law firm has without a lot of sacrifices. So if you're going to do that, you've got to enjoy it. And you've got to enjoy your time at the office. And and if you're away from your family, away from your friends, away from your hobbies or the activities that you like to do, if it's not fun, then it's not worth it. So fun can be explained in many ways. It can be doing something creative within the work environment. It can be fun socially, uh, socially engaged at receptions, parties, uh, charitable events. Or it can just simply be in a, in a very positive, uplifting, inspiring, exciting, and friendly and respectful environment, you know, every day. And, and we, we wear that on our sleeve. We are, and we have been from the very beginning, a very fun and respectful uh, culture. And when I say fun, I mean, people don't take themselves too serious. We will fire someone from this law firm for being disrespectful, from losing their temper, from uh, you know having a an outburst in a negative way, we'll get rid of that person quicker than we will if they're a, a terrible lawyer. And, and I'm exaggerating on both sides to make the point. And we say that all the time. I mean, we just we've never put up with that. Uh, we've never put up with tantrums and raised voices or individuals that think they're better. You know, please and thank you is important around here. And uh, we do that, and we do that on purpose, and we talk about it. And also, we include our families in everything we do. I think we are one of the first law firms, and we may still be one of the few, that when we do our holiday parties or our summer events, we include our spouses or partners. We've been doing that forever. It's getting a little big now, but we continue to do that. And we have family-oriented events on a regular basis. We certainly have separate events for just the lawyers and just the staff and everything like that, because that's important, too, for bonding and you know, collegiality and building a business. But, uh, you know, our main social events include family and include uh, that attitude of respect and, and, and unification together. So that's how we define fun. It's not the fun of, you know, there's been some late nights and some parties, but it's not that's not the theme of our fun. So, so, so you've been 27 years now, plus, I guess, you know, since you started in 93. What are some of the harder lessons you've learned along the way that if you can go back to that, you know, young, naive version of yourself that you would, you, you, you would give yourself, you know, a few tidbits of advice based on, you know, some harder things you've learned along the way? I would say that we have managed this place by, by consensus. And uh, that's easy when you have six people. It's a little bit harder when you have 110. And it's hard to change that. And, you know, you have people that have been here for 25 years that are used to that. And if I could go back and do that again, I would probably be a little bit more, I wouldn't be a dictator, but I think you could, 
you could take some decision-making authority and give it to a smaller group. And that's one thing that I definitely feel because you become unproductive. And that's a challenge in a, in a nimble environment that law has never been viewed as a nimble environment, but it certainly is now. So that's one. Uh, the second thing I do is, and, and for anyone that's out there that is thinking about building a business, is student or young people recruitment. It's the best marketing you can do. In law, we bring in five to 10 new students, that ultimately lawyers a year. It's just the way it is because of attrition. You lose people. I even tell you this. You're a, a bit younger than I am. Well, you, yeah, but you still have your, your hair. So <laughs> yeah, 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 well, that's true. I get lucky there. But you recruit, you recruit, you recruit. It's the best marketing you can do. If you're recruiting great people in our industry, students grow up to be lawyers, but they also grow up to be investment bankers, venture capitalists, private equity, accountants. CEOs, general counsels, VP developments, they grow up to be serious entrepreneurs that have a lot of legal business to give out. And so when you're into a business for 10, 15, 20 years, and you have 10 people go through your doorways applying for jobs, whether you hire them or not, it's a free pitch to that person that ultimately may be a successful person to give you business back. And so if I could do it all over again, I would have had a student recruiting program day one. Of course, you don't have the money, you don't have the foresight, you don't have the resources to do that. But doing that and then maintaining some sort of connection to those that work with you and then move on is very important because ultimately it's just it's free marketing and free exposure. And now with social media, I mean, the minute you give someone an interview, they're going to follow firepower on whatever, whatever social media outlet you're on. And they're going to follow you forever. And so even if you don't hire them, as long as it's a positive experience, they'll keep you on, on their feet. So it's kind of an easy one looking back that we should have done more of. That's great advice. I think uh, I'm, I'm actually going to get off this, uh, this meeting after we're done and, uh, and, and make a call exactly on that point. I think well, it's- I'll tell you, I'll give you like I, I do get a lot of pushback here. And I, they say, well, we've got enough people we don't need to we don't need to interview. And then everyone says, well, I guess if he or she's an astronaut, we may hire them. You know, sort of like, you know, sports teams where it's like, you know, take the best athlete available. If a great athlete comes along, you'll make room for it if it's a sports team. Right. And and the same is with any business. If you if you you should always meet people. Yeah, I mean, you have to have some screening because you get, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm sure you do. We get 10 or 15 resumes a day. But, But you should meet with those people that have great resumes, whether it's needed or not. Because you just never know. And all those people grow up. Like, we have a rule here. Any resumes that come in, we respond. We respond to it, even if we're not looking to someone. Even if it's a bad resume, we respond. We're polite and we're thankful. And I get a lot, a lot. And we have a process in place to ensure we do that. And it's not just an email that's automated, you know, that we're not looking for someone and uh, apply, you know, to here's our website, check it out. It's more, it's much more personal. And, and I think that that bodes well over the long run. So Perry, I want to switch gears before I let you go, because I, I know we only have a few minutes left. One thing that I know about you that others may not is that, you know, outside of being a lawyer, you're a pretty prolific investor. I've seen your name on many cap tables, <laughs> <laughs> ones that you know I know and ones that uh, you may not know I know. My question for you in that regard, you've had a lot of experience doing deals. You've had a lot of experience investing in companies. How do you pick? I mean, you must, like me, see a hell of a lot of opportunities. 
how do you commit to being an investor in something? What are the, the things that are automatic have-to-haves in your head when, you, when you're looking at opportunity? So, I mean, I've learned a long time ago, and, and frankly, even though I'm, I've been at this for a while, it's only in the last number of few years that I've actually hired a professional manager that does it day-to-day. And like we all like, you know, if you like wearing Nike, you buy Nike. And if you like using Apple versus Microsoft, you maybe you look at Apple. Everyone should have a certain amount of money that's in a balanced portfolio that ha- you have professionals run it. And that's it. But I think you're going down more along the lines of venture capital, stage opportunities, what have you. So I've got a, um, a, an automatic screen that most people don't have because I get pitched all the time. And it's like, if I'm not your lawyer, I'm really not interested. Like, I'm not going to invest in someone else. I, like, there's many, many companies that are looking, looking for money. So you need to be our client if you want me to make a reasonable investment in your business, unless there's something really compelling that I don't know. And so I'll take the meetings. That's the first thing. Now, that's not to say that I don't want to see opportunities that I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> that aren't uh, clients of this firm. So I still listen. And, and then also like big companies, uh, companies as they grow need more than one law firm to work with them. So I'm not naive to that as well. That's the first one. Certainly with early stage companies, if we're not behind it and involved, it's hard for me to justify an investment. The second thing is, is that I always ask for a business plan. And you'd be surprised how many people haven't put, well, I know you wouldn't be because you're in the business. How many people haven't put the time into a proper business plan? And it could be wrong, it could be far-fetched, it could be exaggerated, but they need to put, have the discipline to write it out, right? Like, I don't believe it's in my head. It's just, you need to write it out. You need to do competitive analysis. You need to do cash flows. You need to understand HR, like all of that. And those are kind of two early stage, like to-dos that you have to have. So after that, then it's really about the idea and it's about the people and their track record. And that's how I decide. I mean, I, I limit the volume by the law firm thing. And you'd be surprised, not you, but people would be surprised how much wreckage you get rid of when you ask for an actual written business plan. So so can you give me uh, one example of an investment that landed up being a real winner for you that you were, you were surprised by? Well, I mean, I think we were all surprised by all the cannabis success that we all enjoyed. So that one I never thought would take off that way. But it did. But that's more of an industry phenomenon than a. Well, I, I mean, I, let's let's just the best one is the success and failure of of BlackBerry. It was research in motion. We were their counsel right from day one. I'm not really a high tech guy. I understand it. And I see how it goes. But I remember the valuation they got in their first private placement, and I remember being in another business, another meeting with a venture capitalist from Boston, and. I said, can you believe this? It was public. So it, was not, it wasn't public company, but the information was public. I said, can you believe that valuation that Research in Motion got? I mean, it, I said, I was naive. I said, it was a glorified pager. Right? Like, I don't get it. Everyone had pagers. Like, why is this? Like, that was my views at that time. Now, I wasn't working directly on the file, but that's what, what happened. But we all invested as a law firm. Depends on when you sold. We did very well. But that was my view. It was like, well, this is like a glorified pager. Why? Obviously, I was wrong. Obviously, I didn't read the business plan at that time. But but there's one where it was, you know, they were a law, they were a client, the law firm invested, and it worked out very well. And uh, I was wrong, wrong in a good way. I've been wrong in a bad way, too. As you know, we share some 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 investments together. 
But uh, that certainly was one that, well, we all, I'll always remember simply because it was such an iconic Canadian company. But, you know, the world is littered and this office is littered with many, many deals that didn't work out, unfortunately. So, but that one is one that anybody or any one of our viewers would, would know the name. And there was a lot of naysayers at the start with BlackBerry, as there is for any technology company, right? This is not BlackBerry specific. And I mean, you know, I, I, you, all you have to do is Google the newspaper articles back from that time. And lots of people were shaking their heads when, you know, it was the Shopify of, of the day in the late 90s. Its market cap was higher than the Royal Bank of Canada. And everyone was saying it's a new era, right? Well, we all know what happened in 1990s with the dot-com boom, but, but it was real. And it is a real company. It's a real technology. And it's one that, you know, Canada should celebrate. Yeah, I mean, people are are not aware of the, the, the great turnaround that's actually happening within uh, RIM right now. I mean, uh, you know, they've, they've really turned themselves into a, a very good tech business, software business. They, they're, they're very deep in, uh, in cybersecurity and uh, they've, they've done a great job kind of reinventing themselves. Absolutely, yeah. That's the one that's most prominent. There's many of them. Like, I mean, OpenText is a great company. We did their first deal, like as we acted for the underwriters back in the 90s and look at look at what that company's done in Canada it's unbelievable right like it really is there's been a, a number of them that you know lots of them you don't know about either that that just have have springed into awesome businesses right so Perry before I let you go and uh, I appreciate the time you've uh, you've given us for those that uh, want to follow along in your journey that want to get hold of you that like the uh, the sound of uh, of the kind of culture that you have within your law firm, What's the best way they can they can go about doing that? Well, we're we're pretty active on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, certainly, go to our website and feel free to email any any of us, including myself. And uh, we'd welcome the opportunity. I I, I can imagine that your audience is uh, in our wheelhouse and quite sophisticated in what we do. So we'd be happy to entertain calls uh, or emails from anybody that's listening today. Well, I appreciate that, Perry. So once again, thank you very much, and uh, until next time. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure we'll talk soon when we can finally get together and have a drink. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Perry. I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.